Welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree. <laughs> Ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 10, Telesphorus. Telesphorus. Telesphorus, or Telesphorus. You know, T-E-L-E-S-P-H-O-R-U-S. Telesphorus. Yeah, that's some Latin there, something. It's, it's a name. Let me tell you, Fry. This episode has taken me a lot longer than the other ones has. Yeah? I was researching this episode the week that we actually released our show, and it was in between flying to Chicago to come see you for my bachelorette, and planning for the trip, and then with all of the things that came up, it seemed like Telesphorus was going to be cursed with constant interruptions. Every time I tried to research this dude, I was getting nowhere, so fortunately... Planes are a really good time to write, so on my way home after seeing you, I broke Telesphorus's curse. Oh, good. And now we have an episode. That was so long ago now, our show just celebrated a month anniversary, which is super cool, and this episode still isn't going to come out for a bit, so it'll be closer to two-month anniversary then, but we have an episode and we can get into it. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Telesphorus. He was born in either 125 or 126, to a Christian family in Terranova di Sibari, which is in Calabria in Italy. He is also cited as having Greek ancestry, so it's possible that his parents were Greek and had relocated to Italy at some point, likely to be closer to the center of Christianity. Now his name, Telesphorus, is a Greek name, which means accomplishing the goal. What goal is that? Well, I guess we're going to find out. For the first time, we need to discuss that this may not have actually been his original name. It may have been one that he took a little bit later on when he took vows to consecrate himself to God, but it's a little sizzle. We're going to get there in a minute. He might have picked this name? He might have picked this name, and he might have been the first pope to have chosen a pontifical name rather than sticking with his original. We don't know this for sure. But we can kind of speculate, based on what sort of life he lived, that this may be a thing. So, if you can't already tell, I'm very excited because we actually know a little bit about his life before he became Pope. Oh, good. Are you ready for this? No. No, I know. <laughs> You're, there, there are so many directions that this could go, but it's great. Okay, so, the Liber Pontificalis tells us that Telesphorus was an anchorite monk. He's a hermit. Okay, I don't know what an anchorite is. Well, we're going to talk about that. All right. Let's get into it. The word anchorite comes from the Greek word that translates literally to one who has retired from the world. And that's pretty much what they do. They withdraw from public life to live in as close to solitude as possible, as ascetic as possible, and devote themselves strictly to prayer. Wow, that's a choice. It is a very serious choice because the difference between an anchorite and other religious hermits is this vow also requires them to take a stability of place, which means not only are they removed from society like a hermit, but that they also will stay in the same place in permanent enclosure. Like a pen? They are basically to remain in an enclosed cell 
usually within a monastery or a church, for their entire lives. Oh, that's gotta get weird. It gets really weird. Sometimes these cells are literally walled up, except for a couple of small windows. Mm. These windows, that they call the hagioscopes, allow the anchorites to hear masses and to participate in the Eucharist and to get food and a little bit of light, but not much else. They're literally confined to this room for their lives. Wow. Because it's solitary confinement, but they chose it. Exactly. And this is why when they take this vow, the ritual of enclosure is usually very similar to funeral rites, being for all intents and purposes, they are now dead to the outside world. Wow! How did he end up being Pope then? Okay, you're gonna get to it. This is just weird. I'm gonna get to it, yes. But, let's... Now that they are dead to the world, this puts them in a position of very high regard and respect. Because although people are not to actually interact with them, they're basically treated like saints for having chosen to live a life of the utmost purity. And to never leave, even if their homes are being raided or burned well okay they're in a like a brick brick wall uh no it'll just be a tiny oven never mind yep i was like it might not burn oh wait yep and it happened you're gonna have a a a cooked saint instead with telesphorus because this is so early on he would have likely not have had a church with a cell to commit himself to more likely he had like a cave or a secluded dwelling in the woods but Anchorism isn't hugely popular in the ancient world. It would be way more common throughout the Middle Ages, but that's not to say that Telesphorus is completely out of the norm. There are a lot of records of anchorites in the 3rd century, not too long after this, and hermitism was also not entirely unheard of at the time. Maybe he made it popular? Yeah, vogue. (laughs) He started the trend? Yeah. One of the sources that we consult for this podcast... St. Jerome, was also a hermit from the mid-300s, so maybe he was making it popular. It's the cool thing to do. It's becoming the cool thing to do. We have an anchorite pope, okay? For the record, he will not be the only one. He's not going to be the only one? He's not going to be the only anchorite slash hermit pope. And we're going to get to that story in time. It's one of my favorites, but that is so far away. So what we can gather of Telesphorus' life of religious seclusion that right now... At this time in history, it was somewhere between the standard religious hermit and somewhere on the other end, closer to the anchorite style that would become very popular later on. Do you want to see an anchorite cell? I'm just going to send you one real quick. I do. Okay, that is... Yeah. What am I looking at? So the door with the bars would have been completely walled shut, and the little window with the bars is where they would have fed the food through and stuff. Okay, I get it now. That's like a weird depression in the wall. They get their own little alcove as well as a hole in the wall. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not very big. Here's another image that kind of brings home the anchorite lifestyle for you. So I assume if they get like a horrible wasting disease or a heart attack or something, they just die in there because it's like nobody can come in there and face them. (laughs) 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 Okay, this um looks like... On one of the episodes of Cutthroat Kitchen I watched recently, Alton Brown made someone go into, like, a large dollhouse, like a person-sized dollhouse, like a five-year-old-sized dollhouse, and he made them go in there, 
and this is what this looks like. That's exactly what the Anchorite life was like. So now you are informed. And this is, imagine a less organized version of that. So he's living in a cave somewhere or something like that. But still the idea is you stay, you don't leave. So with that in mind, we don't know for sure exactly where Telesphorus was hermited, but there are a fair bit of sources that suggest that it might have been at Mount Carmel in Israel. Now, I'm going to give something away here, I guess, because he is still considered to be the patron saint of the Carmelite orders. At least for the sake of this podcast, we are going to safely accept that it is true or decide that it's true today that he was hermited on Mount Carmel. And this makes sense, too, because the Carmelites are all about contemplation, so someone like Telesphorus would definitely reflect their values. It's a very big order with its own complex history and more than a handful of saints, and maybe we'll do special episodes on them in the future, so. And I definitely know those, probably Carmel with a K and not Caramel. Carmel with the C. Oh, yeah? C-A-R-M-E-L. There's not an A in there. There's a missing A between monks and deliciousness. <laughs> Dang. You don't know. You know, sometimes monks make really delicious things. Well, we have Dom Perignon, right? <laughs> could make caramel? I don't know. They could. We don't know. We'll have to ask the Carmelites if they're into that thing. Wherever he was, and whatever the nature of Telesperus's spiritual vows, we know they didn't last because he had to come out to be Pope. And some sources suggest that he was even called out of his eremitic life to help the church and the Christians, and that maybe the clergy literally sought him out for this. How many people do you think it took to, like, convince him to finally leave? I don't know, because it doesn't really give a lot of indication of whether or not he had been a part of the church before he took these holy orders, or if he just kind of was raised that way and took them on his own, so... We don't know. And we really have very little evidence of this because them saying that he was sought out is very offhandedly mentioned. So we don't know. We just know that for some way and some reason he breaks with being a hermit and moves to Rome. So maybe one day it was just like, yep, you're coming for me. Cool. I'm bored of this cave. I'm sick of these walls. I mean, wouldn't you be? Well, I mean, that was his whole shtick. It could be. We we don't know. I guess we'll have to look at the rest of his papacy and then decide how hard he was to convince. All right. But before we do that, and because of all the changes that are coming from this time period, and because of how it is said that Telesphorus comes to the papacy, it's probably a good time to discuss the state of Catholicism in the second century. If they are looking for a pope to come help them... What exactly is going on? I think we need to really address that. Do they have a gap? There's not exactly a gap, but there's a lot of things that are happening for Christians in general. We know at this point the church has been slowly developing in this time. You know, we've seen the establishments of churches by preachers and bishops that have been sent from Rome. We've seen church communities come into their own and the establishment of the primacy of the authority of Rome. We've seen church traditions start to form, we've seen these massive conversions, we've seen martyrdom, but what we haven't seen a lot of so far is decisions being made on dogma. Really, it's still a new religion. We're not that long after the apostles and the life of Christ, but it's been long enough that some groups are starting to question what they think they know about Christianity and Jesus and God and the apostles, because no one really living at this time 
had a direct connection with Jesus anymore. All right. Too far removed. Yeah. I mean, there's still going to be some apostle proximity that's going to go on, but nobody alive right now has dealt with Christ in his human iteration. With all these questions, we start to have debates that are popping up. There are ongoing questions and debates about Christ's resurrection, and a movement called Gnosticism starts to develop and spread and cause all sorts of problems for the church. We're going to get into Gnosticism in much greater detail later on because it is literally a thorn in the side for the next many, many popes. Is that, um, like being agnostic where you're like, meh? No, it, the word Gnosticism means having knowledge. So it's the opposite of agnostic. These people have the knowledge, whereas agnostic people don't have the knowledge. So don't make hard decisions based on it. Okay, there we go. The Gnostics or the followers of Gnosticism felt that through their own personal knowledge of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, that they were able to personally know things like which religious texts they should read and when Christ would be returning and when the apocalypse would begin. Oh, uh, yeah, I've done transcripts from people like this where they're like, I was in my bathroom and Jesus talked to me. And they're, yeah, they're still totally around in that way. And that's totally what these people are all about. They are like, I have had my personal experience. My knowledge comes through the divine spark in my heart, so I know on my own, basically. Mm -hmm. They also start to argue that the God that's represented in the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. And so they see the Old Testament as something that shouldn't be regarded as a representation of the true God. Again, we'll get into this much bigger detail later on, but there's also this push for a concept called docetism, which argues that Jesus's physical appearance on earth is just an illusion, that he only ever seemed to be human and had never been human and he had never had a real physical body. He was never actually human. All of that blood that came out of him was just your eyes playing tricks on you. Yes, this is what they would argue. And uh, for the reasons you just mentioned, this clashes hugely with teachings of the church over this one major sticking point. If Christ's body had never been physical and his presence was merely an illusion or this semblance of reality, then what is to be made of the passion of Christ? If he wasn't physical, how did he suffer and sacrifice himself and die for the sins of mankind? If it was just an illusion, that kind of undercuts that whole he died for us, he suffered for us, that whole thing goes out the window. So this is a big problem for the early church that they're going to have to deal with. And it's, it's, it's a big issue. And it doesn't end here either, because around the same time, there's a strong push for the leading Christian clergy to separate Christianity and Judaism officially and clearly. So remember when we talked about Evaristus and how the Jews were still playing a fairly prominent and important role in the early church? Yeah. Yeah, we're moving past that point. All right. That's not a thing anymore. In 132 to 136, there is a massive revolt in Judea, led by a man called Simon Bar Kokhba, which is why it is referred to today as the Bar Kokhba Revolt. And it's not really in our scope, so we're not going to dig too deeply into it because it's only tangentially related and 
you know, the main cause of this, like all the complex details of this story would be a whole podcast in itself. So what we need to know is that the main cause of the revolt was in response to increased Roman influence in Judea, which was causing Jewish suppression. And long story short, the Jews are horribly defeated. Judea and its population are completely ravaged, and not for the first time. Judaism gets heavily suppressed. Jews are actually banned from Jerusalem. Wow! Yeah, big deal here. So the empire as a whole is feeling very extremely hostile towards Jews. Yep. Bearing that in mind, it's not terribly surprising that Christians want to separate themselves from all the attitude that the Jews are catching. Yeah, I mean, I understand it, but also how very unchristian of them. Yep, that's a thing. That's a thing we're going to come up to a couple times. It's not a very Christian move. But you can understand it. We're talking about Emperor Hadrian being extremely hostile following the revolt. And since Christians had only just started getting on their feet off the radar of being a threat or a cult, so no one should be particularly shocked that we see church leaders want to shift away some of their conventions to distinguish themselves from the Jews. We're going to see shifts of the Sabbath day from Saturday to Sunday, and Easter conventions are going to change. <laughs> Put a pin in that, because we are going to come back to Easter so many times. Oh, I bet. I bet we come back to Easter, like, a million times. Every episode following this one that I have written, we will talk about Easter, so. Oh. There's so much Easter. So, this is the environment in which Telesphorus is coming into the papacy. You know, it's possible that, considering his hermitage, he is seen as being more reflective or disciplined or insightful. He's the right man for the job, maybe. He doesn't have a side to take, because he hasn't been in there. That's entirely possible. This could be why they're seeking him out, because he's not tied to any particular bias of this experience. They thought maybe this man who'd been living in a cave could help solve some of the questions about spiritual life. And he's not going to be the one to solve all these problems, obviously. These are very complex and very long-lasting issues. But he is the one who's coming to prominence when these topics of confusion are coming to the forefront. This is what we need to talk about with him. It's kind of different and kind of exciting that we have something to say. So what does Telesphorus do with his papacy, you might be asking? Yes. Does he go sit in a room and nothing? Not quite. He actually does a little bit of the opposite. He becomes the Pope of the Holidays. Or at least most of his contributions are about holidays. The Hallmark card Pope? Yes, totally. Okay, so holiday contribution number one. He is cited as the first pope to introduce Midnight Mass on Christmas. Okay. In the letter Pliny wrote to Trajan that we used last week, Pliny mentions how Christians would meet before dawn to celebrate Christ's birth, but it seems that in Telesphorus's time, this got moved even earlier. Now, again, realistically, super unlikely because there doesn't seem to be any actual historical proof that Christmas Mass was celebrated at midnight until at least after 200. Is there even Christmas Mass? Like, yeah, there is, but, and it's it's being mentioned as a thing, but whether or not it was a midnight Mass, we have no actual evidence except for the Liber Pontificalis, and we know what its agenda is. They've since moved it to, like... It's it's allowed, you're allowed to go at like 9.30 now, 10 o'clock. Yeah. Well, you don't want to stay up till midnight. 
staying up till midnight for Jesus. Well, this is what the Liber Pontificalis has to say about it. They say, He appointed that the season of the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ should be celebrated during the night, for in general no one presumed to celebrate Mass before cheers, the house when our Lord ascended through the cross, and that the opening of the sacrifice, the angelic hymn, should, should be repeated, namely, Gloria in excelsis Deo, but only upon the night of the Lord's nativity. Now this last bit refers to the Gloria, or the glory to God in the highest, which is now sung as part of the Mass every Sunday, not just at Christmas, and even to this day, and will be sung, according to articles that I read on the Gloria, will be sung always and forever until the return of the Lord. They're, they're taking their Gloria seriously. Yep, the Gloria. It's very important. And it's credited all the way back to Telesphorus. Maybe kind of, sort of. It's just the liver pontificalis being like, what stamp can we put in here? Exactly. But we do know for sure that it existed in the liturgy by the 6th century, but we're way ahead of that right now, so, yeah. And by the way, for non-Catholic listeners, terse is the third hour of prayer, so by today's standards, terse is 9 a.m. See, I don't know monk speak. Well, that's why I'm throwing it in for you. I don't speak monk. You say, like, non-Catholic listeners, and it's like, I don't know when monks go to church. Nuns? How many times do they need to go to church? Like, ten? I don't know which ones they include in services. I don't speak Catholic. <laughs> I've been to Mass, like, maybe once, dude. Okay, next next holiday thing for Telesphorus. He is also said to have introduced the seven weeks of Lent that predate Easter. I think one of my favorite Lent stories is the one time my cousin decided that he was not going to plug things in for Lent. <laughs> this was prior to that being a problem, like we didn't have cell phones to charge and things like that. But that is what he gave up for Lent, plugging things oh in. Oh my god. So he didn't have to vacuum and he didn't have to, you know which cousin this is, you could guess. <laughs> oh god, I totally can't. Now, okay, the real question is, was it, if things were already plugged in, could he use them because he didn't plug them in? Yes. Oh, wow. That's a pretty sweet one. I'm gonna remember that for next Lent. <laughs> His uh, brother and sister started unplugging the game systems and computers on him. <laughs> oh, you deserve that. Well, he can thank Telesphorus for the seven weeks of Lent, although he isn't the first to observe Lent as a religious practice of self-denial and penance. It's already something that was in practice, but it's apparently down to Telesphorus that it's seven weeks. Again, if this is true, it didn't get much further than the church in Rome and the surrounding areas, because it doesn't get officially adopted as total canon until the Council of Nicaea. Now today, Lent is observed for six weeks to be closest to Christ's journey in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, for our non-Catholic listeners. <laughs> and now, again, we come to the big one, because we have to talk about Easter. Are you prepared to have this conversation? For the next many, many weeks, because apparently Telesphorus is the Pope that decreed that Easter would now be celebrated on a Sunday. Always to be celebrated on a Sunday, because Jesus had been resurrected on a Sunday. <sighs> yeah, okay, Sunday. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. 
the big Catholic thing happening here, monster trucks. Well, this is a differing position from what is called the quarto deciman perspective, where Easter is always celebrated three days after Passover, the 14th day of Nisan in the Hebrew calendar, regardless of what day of the week it was. This quarto deciman thing is happening in the Eastern churches and is a tie-over mostly from Jewish Christians. And so since we're at a time where the separation between Christian and Jewish wants to be made, Telesphorus clarifies that the Christian position from this point onwards is Easter is always going to be on a Sunday. And we actually have some source material for this from Eusebius and Irenaeus, mainly because Irenaeus wrote to the future Pope Victor on the topic because all the celebration of Easter on a Sunday was something that Victor would reinforce very hard later on. Oh god, that means I have to talk about it for so much longer. I'm not up to Victor yet. <laughs> it's Easter all the way down. We deserve so many Cadbury eggs for this. By the end of this, I am going to hate Easter so much. Irenaeus's comments on Victor's position express some context, and he cites Telesphorus' decision to have solidified Easter on a Sunday, although it is not solidified at all. But he also explains that Telesphorus was pretty chill about it, and he did not choose to break with the quarter decimals. Man, I cannot imagine this pope. This pope who lived in a, like, one-room shack and didn't talk to people. Like, the second someone came at him and was like, I don't like what you're saying, he was probably like, okay. Yeah, he was, he didn't excommunicate them, basically. He was like, that's cool. It's not a big deal, but we're celebrating on a Sunday. I'm just gonna back off a little bit on my hard stance because I would rather live in a one-room shack in the woods. Yeah, and he, he totally, at this point, for all intents and purposes, accepts the lack of uniformity to keep the Eastern Church relatively within the fold. So it was enough to make a decree and make the distinction from the Jewish population without losing this whole chunk of church. So he's going to leave that to Victor in the future. Oh, God, we're going to talk about it all the way to Victor. I just... <sighs> you just realized that now. I've been talking about it for so many episodes. Okay, so... To wrap up our story on Telesphorus, we have to deal with his death. And I like how in my note here it says, death with his death. <laughs> I like when you write notes, but you're clearly not cognizant. Yeah, no, it's just like a bunch of jarbled that got stuck together. Insomnia notes. Yeah, definitely. So we have to deal with his death. And like the other early popes, Telesphorus was martyred in 136 the first year of Antoninus Pius, most likely because he had been pulling a lot of conversions through his preaching. Okay. Now, we don't know how he was martyred exactly, but here's the thing. He is the first pope that we can say for sure that he was martyred. Actually verified from historical sources from relatively around that time. But they don't say how? They just say martyred? They just say martyred. I mean, yes, we have had the Liber Pontificalis call other people martyrs. But here, this is actually really, totally and utterly corroborated. We have Irenaeus in his Against Heresies, Volume 3, Chapter 3, Line 3, saying, Telesphorus met with a glorious martyrdom. And he is one of our most reliable sources from the era. And he did not refer to any of the other popes we have dealt with as being martyrs until right now. So this is... 
We know. We know. For sure. He died this way. Uh, they could have wrote down, like, side note, beheading. <laughs> Anything. Side note, lions. He got nommed. Side note, any other death. Well, in time, we will have some pretty gruesome deaths to cover. I've been... I've been right reading about one in particular that isn't exactly a pope, but we're going to be talking about him a lot, and you're really going to enjoy it. So, <laughs> <laughs> but that brings us to the end of Telesphorus, and we must now rate him. All right, let's do the thing. Okay. Papatum Infalium. How successful was he as a pope? Well, he introduced the Midnight Mass to Christmas. We're just going to accept these things as fact because we need to talk about something. He he's seven weeks for Lent. He started. I am going to rate him down for starting this Easter bullshit. I can't handle it. I'm marking him down. This wishy washy Easter stuff. Uh it's it's so it's not that it's wishy washy because I understand at the time that what he was doing was he's rejecting the quarto deciman view as being not the official stance, but he's also not breaking with the church. So for the moment. This makes a lot of sense to me. He doesn't really want to break up the church. And is it that important at this time? No, not really. I'm just going to mark him down because it's it's just so much to talk about. It's the same debate for the next hundred years. No, it will be the same debate until the Council of Nicaea in 325. So, oh, okay. This is going to impact my score. What would you like to give him? Uh, I'll give him, like, a two. You're gonna give him a two? Yeah. Um, let's see. I was gonna score significantly less than you, but I can't give him a zero. He has done some things. He did a little bit of things. I don't know. Being Hallmark card Pope is not really doing it for me. Well, you know, that's... we Last week, we both, I think, gave Sixtus... Yeah, we gave Sixtus a two, and he was a Pope that did... Pretty much nada. So I think that's fair. You're so lucky, Telesphorus, that she scored you low, because I can't give you a zero. I will give you a two, and it will be a four for Papachum and Phallium. Fructus prohibitum? Bad behavior. Okay, we actually have something to talk about here. He was a hermit or an anchorite. That usually includes vows, and he clearly broke them. He definitely did. So... I think we gotta give him something in the, in the scandal category for that. We do, but like, okay, do we rate, do we do, let's, let's decide on a base vow breaking score right now. Ooh. But there's so many different vows that you can break and some are so much worse than others. But they're still terrible in your soul. Yeah, but, like, the vow to leave a cave versus, like, the vow to be chaste or celibate or to not murder people, like, mm, not on the same level. I suppose. I will give him, I guess, a one. I think that's all he can get. That he left his, his one-room shack in the forest, and he really shouldn't have. He should have done some more soul-searching, but it is what it is. So we're going to get, I'm going to give him a one too, because I think that's, I don't like, I don't want to give him a half point for this. But I think a one is a, is a good score. And I think two for breaking your vows in total is, is decent. So he'll get a two considering that, you know, 
one, two, three, four, five popes before him have gotten zeros. I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that gives him a two for Fructus Prohibitum. Seculari Impactum. His effect on the everyday people is starting this Easter debate and harassing me about it. Um, He's affected you deeply on a personal level. You are offended. I am offended, and I blame him for it. Beyond that, not a whole lot. I mean, it does... We're talking about a time period where we're seeing this separation with the Jews, and it's kind of at the time period. It is really Like, why Jesus would be disappointed. Jesus would be rolling in his grave had he had a grave. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't... I don't I, this is clearly not his decision that he's making to completely separate with the Jews. It's not entirely him. Um, this is something that will go on for a while. But because that's the only thing I can think of and it's not great, I think it has to be a zero. Yeah. Yeah, I'll give him a zero too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's a zero. He's not impacting in a good way. It's true. Fossium Sanctus. Are you ready to see what the anchorite looked like? You know, it's going to be better than this little dude peeping out this window. Well, I mean, he certainly has something different about him than some of the other popes. So here we go. This is the one we're gonna uh, we're gonna review on. So oh, okay. What happened to this painting? I don't know. It looks like cross stitch. Like what happened to it? I think that's just the quality of the image. <laughs> How dare you, image quality? I expect. Full 1080p. Well, I got some stuff to show you later, but this is the one we're voting on, so. So, he's got a lazy eye. <laughs> See, when I looked at this image, all I saw was, oh, he's significantly younger than the popes we've had so far. He has color in his hair, and you go straight for a lazy eye. I did not even notice. <laughs> I see it now, and now it's jumping out at me, but I did not before. Yes, he's got he's got brown in his hair still. He's yeah, he's much younger than he's not very wrinkled. He's uh certainly bald, mostly bald, so. Yeah, well, I mean there's people my age that are completely bald. So, that's true. So, do you think he looks better or worse for being younger plus or minus the lazy eye? He's not a he's not a good-looking guy. <laughs> so, what would you like to give him? He also has some very luscious lips. Oh, yes. We're back to luscious lips. I mean, it's hard to tell. He's got luscious facial hair, for sure. He's got a lot of facial hair. So, and and you, we might remember that, was it Sixtus, who's all like, no beards, so. Yeah, no beards. He's got a beard. He's already going against the ordination, so, hmm, interesting. He just doesn't want to do anything anybody tells him. Except for come out of his cave. It's true. All right, um, I would give him, wow, okay, um, can I give him, like, a one and a half? You sure can. That lazy eye is getting to me. I'm gonna give him, because he has a beard and because he has a lazy eye, I'm just gonna give him a two. And then that will give us a total of, oh, geez, 0.875. Way to go, Fry, you messed it up. All my nice, neat numbers are now wrecked. <laughs> okay, okay, what, the thing about this painting is that it looks like it's two different paintings, because if you literally, like, put your hand down the middle of his face, that looks fine. 
And if you look on the other side, that looks all right. Oh my god. But not together. <laughs> oh dear. Oh. The one side looks very scared. <laughs> like if you only do it. <laughs> it does. I just can't believe you would notice that without actually sticking your finger up. Wow. He does look really scared. Normal man? Really scared, dude. Oh. We've just created our first uh, game for our listeners to play along. Hold your finger up to half of the Pope's face. Check it out. It's normal man. Terrified man. But guess what? We have more images to look at. So, okay. Remember when I told you I had found somebody who looked just as angry as Everestus? Yes. All right. Are you ready? This is a man who did not want to leave his cave. He is upset. His frown goes all the way down. It's like that Obama picture where he's doing a really aggressive frown. I think the appropriate word here is sourpuss. <laughs> scowly. He's very scowly. And then we have this image to look at from 954. Not contemporary at all, but, you know, it's a thing. Okay. He's gonna fly away on his little hair bits. <laughs> I love the wingy hair bits. I can tell you. If he had wingy hair bits in the last one, I would have rated him higher. Yes, if his hair was literal wings, yes. It would have offset the half a face and half a face. He also looks like super chunky in this one, and I kind of like it. I love the idea that maybe he left his cave and discovered food. That would be great. And then there's just this one, because apparently some people know nothing about papal history, and they gave him all the vestments he definitely wouldn't have had, so... You got some purple and some... He's got the papal tiara. It is a thing. These, th this is a part of an image that has many, many, many popes, and they pretty much all look the same, and obviously someone was just assigned to give him a random face, so that's a thing. That's fair. Then we have Tempus Pontificus. Okay. How long was he pope? Eusebius places the beginning of his pontificate and the twelfth year of the reign of Emperor Hadrian. And that would give him 128 to 129 and gives the date of his death being in the first year of the reign of Antoninus Pius, 138 slash 139. So who knows? Irenaeus tells us 136, but most other sources state his papacy as being 126 to 137, 125 to 136. So either way, it gives us a papacy of 11 years and a total score of 2.75. Canon bonus round! <laughs> okay. Is he a saint? He is a saint. I would assume so. They're all saints for a while. So many are saints. The first time we have one that's not a saint will be, will be like such a surprise. So... His feast day is January 5th, but the Eastern Church also celebrates a feast day for him on February 22nd. January 5th is the one that matters for this purposes, but there is another one. He is a patron saint of something. We already mentioned it in the episode, so it's not a surprise. He is the patron saint of the Carmelite Order, so... Yep. That's a thing. Doesn't get a weird patron sainthood. Nope. Also, he has a town named after him in Canada. It's called saint Telesphore in southwestern Quebec. Oh, the French. The French like this man. They, they just love saints in general, so. It makes them sound hoity-toity. Montreal is like the most Catholic place in Canada, so. 
that is a thing. It's just kind of cool to actually see someone who has a is actually a patron saint and is actually still relevant even in very small ways. So that's cool. Yep. So we don't have to assign him something? We do not have to assign him something. Good. He wouldn't have made out well in that transaction. He would not have. So let's look at his final score. With the scores we gave him, his final score, thanks to your half point, <laughs> is... Maybe he shouldn't be two different people. 10.625. What if that brings a, him above somebody at some point? It does. It it will. It it He has scored higher than Sixtus last week. It's not great, but he he was clearly not as awful as... Or I should say, Sixtus was not awful. He was just boring, and there's no information about him. So he, he is rightfully above him. All right. But that's that's about it. So now we need to discuss whether or not he has that papal pizzazz and personality and impact to be worthy of a papal bull. What are you feeling? So, no, but he could get a papal bull on a greeting card from me. Well, we could send him that really pretty picture we have of the papal bull and be like, nah, he didn't get it. Because <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm not prepared to give it to him either. I think, yeah, no, he's... He was fun to research. I liked the whole Anchorite thing. That made him more interesting. So if he was going to get it for anything, it would be that. Bowsy bro. Yep. But I can't give him that. So no. Sorry, man. You're headed straight to purgatory with Sixtus. Bye. Bye. <laughs> and that brings us to some thank yous because, oh my goodness, we have some thank yous to make. Every time. It's never going to end. No, it's not. People are awesome. People are supporting us like crazy, and we couldn't be more grateful about it. You guys freaking rock. It's mind-blowing how many people have, who are, are deserving of our things. So, jumping right in. Again, we need to thank Rex Factor for inspiring us, and Totalis Rankium for the same, but also specifically to Rob from Totalis Rankium. Because he has now made us papal scorecards. Oh, those things look so cool. They are so awesomely designed. I'm so happy with them. They look amazing, and it's going to be so easy to reference back to them. It gives us a lovely graphic when we get our website going. Oh, they're just great. So thank you so much for that. Next, we need to thank Saga Thing. They are not only recommended us on their last podcast, they welcomed us into the Rexypod family. So. That was super nice, and we love you guys, and so thank you for that. We need to thank Ryan at the History of Ancient Greece, who has invited us to do a promo at the beginning of his episode on omens in the ancient Greek world, so thank you, Ryan. That's super awesome. Also, every time he tweets about our show, we get some new downloads, so that is super cool. We need to thank the Northern Myth Podcast for recommending us. That was awesome. Scott Rowland and the Roman and Byzantine History Facebook group, and the artist Moira for allowing us to share her art. She drew this wonderful picture of a of a papal bull, and it is phenomenal. You'll probably see it. It is really cute. It is awesome, and it wasn't designed for us, but she has allowed us to share it and use it and reference it, and it's great. So we will be doing that. I had to dig through her like tumblr and find where her tumblr was so that i could ask her about it it's that good that we we definitely had to track her down 
Also, thanks to Scott for sending it to me in the first place because, yeah, that was awesome. We love it. We need to thank the Age of Victoria podcast. They did a mini episode where they talked about how much they liked our show at the end and gave us a really good recommendation. So thank you so much. That was super, super nice. Our promo is also going out on their show. They invited it. Uh, Christopher invited us to do a promo and hopefully it sounds good. <laughs> and then we need to also thank the Why Is That podcast because they wrote a article recommending new 10 new history podcasts that they had come across and we were on it and they said very nice things about us so thank you very much super cool yeah we were pretty high on that list that was fun and finally we need to thank all of you who are listening who have left us reviews because we finished our first month as a podcast with 13 reviews and even more ratings so on itunes that was amazing we were not expecting that that is super cool yeah, I'm super excited by everybody who's listening and reviewing and, like, the numbers tick up and we get such lovely comments. We do. We do all the time. Please, please keep it up. Let us know what you want to hear. Please keep reviewing. Keep rating. It really, really helps our show get out there and lets people find us. So, yeah, that is awesome. So, you can find us on uh, Twitter and Facebook at PontifaxPod. You can send us messages. So many messages. I always say that we're not going to bite, <laughs> but uh, I promise we really are not going to bite. Speak for yourself. Oh, I didn't... You don't have to... I'm going to kink shame you right now. <laughs> we're going to cut that out. Yep. That's not allowed on this non-explicit podcast. <laughs> we sent dicks out for celibacy. Give me a break. The dicks were out, though. They aren't allowed to go in if you're celibate. <laughs> Okay, yeah, you can also email us at pontifactspod at gmail.com. You can find us on most major podcatching platforms. We um, exist, and you should listen. But you already are, because you're here. Fantastic. And with that, we say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.